you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. We are already back with a new episode, as I mentioned in the last podcast with Robbie Martin. I'm hoping to put out more episodes this month because of health issues that kept me from podcasting most of May and part of April. Uh, Since I'm playing catch up uh, a little bit with this podcast, I've been looking to cover some major events that took place while I was away. In addition to what I discussed with Robbie in the last podcast, I've also been eager to cover the relatively sudden pivot regarding the attention now being given by mainstream media and some alternative media outlets to the lab leak theory and more broadly the possibility that the origins of COVID-19 could be related to gain-of-function experimentation. After aggressively censoring such discussion throughout last year, something has obviously shifted in recent months, raising the question as to why and why now. Of course, in discussing such theories, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has figured prominently for obvious reasons. However, despite now being recently deemed safe, quote-unquote safe, Uh, to discuss in mainstream and some independent media circles. A few have tackled the considerable involvement at the Wuhan lab of U.S. government entities or funding uh, or the possibility that the breaches last year at the U.S.'s biosafety level four lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland, could have played a role in the origins of the condition. To discuss this and more, I am joined today by Sam Husseini. Sam is a Maryland-based journalist and artist who has written for Counterpunch, Anti-War, The Nation, Salon, Consortium News, Fair, and most recently, Independent Science News. Uh, Sam has been one of the few journalists of his caliber that has been willing to tackle gain-of-function research as a topic in dual-use biowarfare biodefense research in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis in a nonpartisan manner. So great to have you on the podcast, Sam. How are you doing? Very well. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you. It's an honor, Whitney. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, um, I'd like to start by asking you about your initial impressions of this recent shift around the plausibility uh, of the lab leak theory and the mainstream attention now being given to the gain-of-function issue. So why do you think the shift has taken place, and why do you think it's happening now? Um, I think there are two reasons for it. Uh, they're, they're both kind of insidious, one more subtly than the other. Um, one reason is that more scientists are speaking out. Um, there were some scientists who, you know, would not say a word, um, until, uh, relatively recently, um, even turning down questions, um, about it at news conferences and so on, the possibility of, uh, lab origin, um, uh, so that that's sort of one thread, and, and I think that it's somewhat of an indictment that this whole story, somewhat of an indictment of the establishment science, not, not just the people who, you know, um, uh, put out the false narrative that, that a lab origin is a conspiracy theory, but also those that were that were silent um, through much of uh, last year and into this year. The other um, strand, which is more obviously nefarious. Um, is that, that it's being pushed by, and, and might be related actually to the first thing, is that it's being pushed by, um, spooks, um, in conjunction with the Biden administration. Um, uh, I mean, it, this story really got going with a Wall Street Journal article, um, uh, making allegations about, um, workers at the, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology getting COVID-like symptoms earlier than the outbreak had been previously documented. Uh, This is all anonymous. It may or may not be true, of course, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that's really what sort of, you know, got this more prominently or uh, genuinely prominently on the agenda, as well as the Biden administration saying, yeah, we're going to look at this. And Fauci has, you know, kind of totally changed his line from dismissing 
things to um, uh, to saying, oh yeah, we, we, we need to look at this and pretending that he hadn't been dismissed in the manner that he was. So it's a huge, I guess you'd say, gaslighting exercise going on. Um, uh, so I, I think that those are those are the main two reasons that that it's that it's sort of getting to you know, some some attention now. Um, but the attention is extremely constrained. Um, it's uh, first off, I, I should say at the top, I don't I try to avoid using the term lab leak. Um, I say lab origin. Lab leak implies it's an accident, um, which it may well have been. Uh, there are uh, there's a long history of you know accidental releases from labs, um, uh, but. Uh, I, I think it's more accurate to say lab origin and to take this step by step. I think a year spent dismissing the possibility of any kind of lab origin, you know, including accident, has now shifted to um, pretending that accident is the only possible form of lab origin. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, are obvious precursors for intentional release of uh, lab agents. Um, and, and I, you know, we just need to be systematic about it. And virtually all the current coverage is not at all systematic. About it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's interesting what you brought up about um, the potential involvement of, of spooks and, and similar figures and pushing this uh, narrative or this shift in the narrative more recently. Um, because actually back in January 2020, the first I, I wrote about how the first claims uh, that were asserting that COVID-19 was a a Chinese bioweapon uh, that had come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology had originally been circulated by um, Radio Free Asia, which, of course, is a U.S. government-funded outlet uh, previously in its earlier history run directly uh, by the CIA, but now run by uh, the State Department and the Broadcasting Board of Governors. And the second individual um, that was promoting those claims was um, an individual named Danny Shoham, mm -hmm. uh, who's an ex-IDF uh, high-ranking doctor um, who had previously blamed Saddam Hussein for weapons of mass destruction and anthrax, I believe, um, in, in, the, um, in the aftermath of the, of the anthrax attacks. So um, I remember reading that apparently the author of this more recent World Wall Street Journal article uh, you had referred to, it also had some similar history regarding uh, blaming Saddam Hussein for various things. Uh, but I, I haven't checked that out for myself, but that certainly would be uh, pretty telling um, if that was the case. And of course, one thing that has been pretty much avoided um, is something in terms of this narrative and uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is the involvement of U.S. government funding there. And to an extent, it has been covered by some outlets, in the, but just in the context of really um, Anthony Fauci's um, involvement in some of that funding or NIH funding specifically, um, not in the funding um, given to that um, institute by other U.S. government entities. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to ask you about um, last year and how the climate of, of censorship before the sudden shift saying it's suddenly okay now, um, how did that um, affect your ability to write on the topics of gain of function, biowarfare and biodefense dual use uh, research labs last year? I'd, I'd love to answer that, but let me just dovetail on your comments on the Wall Street Journal thing. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, that Wall Street Journal piece had a fascinating byline. It was Michael Gordon, who had, who was a co-author of many of the pieces with uh, the infamous uh, Judy Miller, 
Uh, yes, that, I think that was part of what I had heard. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. And, and and some sectors on the left have acknowledged that, particularly people who don't want to look at lab origin at all. Um, and it's certainly a legitimate point. I, I don't begrudge that. Um, the other part of uh, one of the other people on that byline was Warren Sobel, who was on the other side within the you know establishment media circles. He was at Knight Ritter, and of course they had you know a bona fide whistleblower. Um, at the Pentagon, um, saying that uh, the WMD case was being fabricated. Um, so it was a very um, notable um, mix of bylines. Oh, interesting. Going mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, um, uh, the, the other thing with Gordon is that in some of his interviews, it seems to be attributed to a, a third country. Um, and he hasn't said what the third country is. That's the source for these, this anonymous alleged information about uh, workers uh, who want student huh. getting sick. Um, but he has said mm-hmm. um, uh, in the course of an interview, we have we sometimes trust third country uh, sources like Israel. Um, now, he didn't say that this source in this case was Israel, but he actually brought up Israel as a trustworthy source. Mm-hmm. So, um, as you said, Israel has been pushing this narrative from, or, or Israeli allied sources have pushed this narrative from the front, uh, from, from the start, which is certainly one more reason to be extremely careful and extremely cautious about it. Um, but it, 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 it seems to be in the background still. Right. Well, um, I'm glad you brought that up. Interesting, interesting point there. Um, but, you know, um, I, I do want to clarify, too, the reason I brought up the involvement of Radio Free Asia and, mm-hmm. and this ex-IDF guy, Danny Shoham, isn't because I I discount uh, the idea of it potentially being some sort of, um, you know, uh, lab origin mm-hmm. pathogen or anything like that, but mainly because I think there was a, a vested interest in pushing that narrative. And I think that uh, same narrative is now uh, potentially being pushed again, at least specifically by people on on the right, um, sort of as a way of saying, oh, this was all, uh, you know, the Chinese government, you know, despite the fact that we know that there was a lot of involvement from the U.S. Um, and a lot of collaboration in Wuhan, not just at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but a, um, a biosafety level three lab also in Wuhan that's directly partnered with Fort Tedrick and things like that. But we can all get to that uh, later because <laughs> uh, we do have plenty to discuss today. So um, I just wanted to return to my uh, previous question about how uh, the censorship last year affected your ability to write on these topics, if that's okay. Sure. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the censorship was horrible generally. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, you know, an, an incredibly uh, <laughs> horrid experience for me personally. Um, you know, I could see, I mean, you know, it started with me that the CDC had a news conference um, in on February 11th at the National Press Club. And I actually asked then, um, you know, is it a complete coincidence that uh, this outbreak happens in Wuhan, the one city in China with a declared BSL-4 lab, which, you know, deals with the most deadly pathogens. And I also asked about um, the dangers of gain-of-function, so-called gain-of-function research, that, that is the creation in laboratories of potentially pandemic pathogens. Um, and I was struck by the disingenuous response of the CDC uh, official. Um, so I, I, you know, I feel like I kind of laid out um, in that Q&A 
um, the, the basic crux of the issue. I was alerted to this issue from Francis Boyle. He sent me an email, I, I believe, before Tom Cotton, um, you know, brought this up and helped the right wing own this issue. Um, and, you know, Francis sent me an email in late January saying somebody should really check if there's a lab in Wuhan. And then, <laughs> and I didn't bother checking. And then the next day, he sent me another email that said, bingo, uh, there is a lab in Wuhan. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I started sort of paying attention to this. Um, uh, you know, uh, Francis Boyle is a professor at the University of Illinois. He wrote the, the uh, implementing legislation for the Biowarfare Convention, you know, that, that prohibits um, that kind of work. And he, you know, he argues that um, the U.S. is effective in all of these labs. Uh, U.S. or otherwise, are effectively um, uh, violating the Biowarfare Convention. Mm-hmm. You can get to that. Anyway, so uh, that, that's how I got into it. I put that question out there. It was completely ignored. Um, and then um, the Lancet letter came out, orchestrated by Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance, branding the notion of lab abortion a conspiracy theory, um, You know, further silencing everybody. Um, and then the Nature Medicine article came out um, uh, saying that they had determined that uh, lab origin was not a possibility. Um, it, Merrill Nass at that point, who runs the Anthrax vaccine blog, told, you know, said this article is BS, um, the, this Nature Medicine article. It, it doesn't even pretend to look at other forms other than crude um, genetic engineering techniques and how it could come out of a lab. And then I passed that to uh, Richard Ebright, who's, uh, you know, widely regarded as an eminent scientist at Rutgers University, who has been outspoken in his warnings about the dangers of um, some of this biolab work. And he said, yeah, you know, you could imagine serial passage and other techniques, uh, which had been causing concern um, in, you know, in scientific and media circles over the last decade, at least, uh, when they made the avian flu, you know, uh, more easily transmissible, NIH-funded scientists in the Netherlands and University of Wisconsin. Anyway, so here it was, this story, this piece in nature medicine was clearly fallacious and was dominating the media coverage. And I knew that. And I was trying to get that information out. And I knocked on a lot of media doors of a lot of media organizations that I had a very long relationship with, and none of them wanted to touch it. And that helped the right own the issue um, so that it became an issue of China bashing and not an issue of let's look at mm-hmm. bio dangerous lab work. Yeah, absolutely. It became very politicized almost right away. Yeah, well, it, 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 it's, I mean, Peter Daszak and company were trying to politicize it from day one. Right. But it was mm-hmm. a period between when uh, the, that Nature Medicine article came out and what I knew would happen and what I was trying to stop from happening was that I knew Trump would say something about it. And then that would completely calcify the issue. So I was desperate in those, you know, several weeks trying to get the information out. And and I should say Meryl Nass, um, you know, did her 
you know, posted a couple of blog entries and so on about it. Anyway, so, um, so finally, unfortunately, um, uh, uh, Fox, I think, asked Trump about it and he embraced the possibility of lab origin. And of course, that then, then the political, you know, atmosphere was completely calcified. Um, uh, and, um, Ironically, that day, Salon finally got back to me and said, yeah, we want a peace, which, you know, to their credit, you know, because everybody else, that made them more calcified um, to Salon. It suddenly became a story. Uh, so that, that that was how I got my, my, my first major article, you know, sort of, you know, looking at this. And I should say, part of the problem with the current thing, as Richard Ebright and others will, will, will note, is there's there's very little new data. The sudden fashionableness of lab origin is not based on any, you know, provable new scientific revelations. Right. Uh, it, it's basically been sitting there for a year. There are a few, but it's quite minor. Um, so these have been political decisions, political calculations, because of the posture towards Trump, because of the power of much of the um, U.S. government uh, scientific establishment to try to bottle this up. And now the Biden administration can um, uh, can you know sort of use this against China in a slightly more subtle way than you know, Trump's knuckle knuckle dragging um, knuckle, knuckle dragging manner. So it's been incredibly difficult for me personally to get information out. I mean, and because now that it's fashionable, you know, it's everybody's using it for their own political ends. There's virtually no right. media space <laughs> for someone actually, you know, as as Robert Perry, the um, founder of Consortium News, um, loved to say, I don't care what the truth is. I just care what the truth is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to come at this with a political axe to grind. I'm just trying to figure out what the facts are. And there's very little media space for that kind of attitude at this point, even among, um, you know, presumably independent progressive media. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I have my own experiences with that um, as well, um, which I definitely think is unfortunate. But I think a lot of it, um, well, maybe not for every independent media outlet, but I think for some uh, during this period, it had to do with concerns about getting censored on social media, losing social media accounts, which accounted for a considerable amount of their reach because they don't have the same resources as mainstream media do to reach an audience. At least that's what, um, you know, I heard through um, my connections from from people at different um, outlets that, that chose not to cover this um, particular topic and still haven't, but, you know. Yeah, I think that that's true for some outlets. I, I'm pretty sure that's true of Mint Press, for example. But, um, I mean, I, I talked to them, um, but, but... You know the the other thing is which I, I empathize with. I mean, I, I I mean I should confess. I mean I didn't do a lot on Twitter on Lab Origin for fear of being deplatformed. So you know I'm 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 a little bit culpable um, there. I could have tried to get this stuff out through Twitter. I I thought and that I think probably correctly that I would immediately deplatformed and I wouldn't be doing anybody any good by doing that. But, but I mean, there were outlets, you know, um, the, the nation, the gray zone uh, that were on the other side explicitly, you know, dismissing yeah. lab origin as a conspiracy theory. They totally, well, democracy now was horrid. They brought Peter Daszak on <laughs> yeah. after yeah. Trump spoke about it and said, oh, uh, Mr. Daszak, you know, Dr. Daszak, probably, you know 
uh, these people uh, in Wuhan. <laughs> this, this couldn't have happened, right? Absolutely not. This is a total conspiracy theory. What a nutcase Trump is. Let's be rid of him. You know, that, that was the, you know, what passed for independent journalism. Right. Well, I think even now that there's been this shift, even outlets like Democracy Now, I don't, it, maybe I'm mistaken, but I haven't really seen any buzz about them covering, <laughs> covering this topic. And I, um, and I, I kind of doubt they will. Yeah, just a couple of little headlines or something. Right. So um, since you've brought up Peter Daszak, we might as well move along to discuss a little bit about EcoHealth Alliance. Sure. So um, I'm talking about this current narrative shift, and we mentioned a, a little earlier about some of what's been left out of, of this uh, new narrative on uh, the potential origins of COVID-19 and the potential role that gain-of-function may play in that. Um, and of course, um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology had a partnership Strategic partnership is listed on their website with EcoHealth Alliance, um, and of course, EcoHealth Alliance NIH funding in the early earlier part of last year was suspended over this whole um, scenario that you're describing with um, uh, Trump's initial comments and you know Peter Daszak's own personal pushback on Democracy Now, among other places, and they were cast kind of in a sympathetic light. Um, but then you came a couple months later and reported on the uh, hidden funding that EcoHealth or hidden in the sense that they've tried to hide it or obfuscate it to the greatest extent possible, that uh, in in contrast to the amount of funding they receive from the NIH, they receive most of their funding actually from the U.S. Department of Defense, from the Pentagon, uh, specifically, um, I believe, the DTRA, which is involved in in sort of this dual-use biodefense, biowarfare funding, um, in, both in the U.S. and abroad to a significant degree, and also, of course, um, significant amounts of funding from EcoHealth Alliance come from USAID or USAID, uh, which has been uh, called out for years by, uh, I, you know, uh, independent journalists I consider really credible, like Mark Ames as a CIA cutout. Um, and the evidence certainly points there. So um, w if you wouldn't mind sort of um, expanding on, um, you know, uh, EcoHealth Alliance, um, their funding, uh, why it's relevant, why Peter Daszak is not exactly um, an honest broker or rather an uninterested party when it comes to this topic. Right. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the role that Daszak played um, has just been incredible. I mean, he funded the, the, the lab in Wuhan. Um, uh, then he was out in front and, uh, transparency group, us right to know, uh, did a FOIA, which confirmed what I and other people suspected that he organized the Lancet letter in February, deeming lab origin as a conspiracy theory. And, and the emails that they found, you know, actually had him saying, uh, this can't appear to be a political document. You know, I mean, he was very conscious. Um, of um, uh, and and recent emails uh, from the Post and BuzzFeed, which may well be a limited hangout, um, you know, have him and you know thanking Fauci for dismissing Lab Origin uh, as a possibility. Um, so um, so he's out there, you know, screaming that th this couldn't possibly have anything to do with a lab, and. Um, then he ends up being put on both the WHO Origins Committee and the um, uh, Lancet uh, Committee uh, on, on Origins, uh, which was overall headed by Jeffrey Sachs. Um, uh, you know, I, of course, emailed Sachs and said, do you know about this obvious conflict of interest? 
Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been in peripheral contact with Sachs in the past, and of course he didn't respond. So in the course of all of this, uh, several people were looking at his funding. I got a tip from an anonymous account uh, on Twitter. A lot of this work has been done by, um, you know, people on Twitter who are anonymous and have managed to keep their accounts, as well as the um, good folks at uh, Organic Consumers Association. Um, have done some uh, very strong work in this regard. Uh, Alexis, um, terrible with last names, uh, that are mayor. And so I sort of bottom lined uh, Desix funding EcoHealth Alliance. Um, it, it's actually USAID actually gets EcoHealth Alliance more than the Pentagon. They're, they're oh, all the right, my mistake. They're, mm-hmm. they're actually bigger. Um, and um, it's been interesting to see how like Vanity Fair recently had a piece about the internal State Department deliberations regarding lab origin. There is not a word in that article about the fact that the State Department slash USAID is the main funder for a lot of this dangerous lab work. Um, so I, I think that that whole part of the equation continues to be outright ignored and kind of insidiously ignored. So. Um, uh, but we went through all the government databases. Of course, EcoHealth Alliance wouldn't, um, uh, you know, say, you know, give all, all any of their financial information. And actually, on their webpage, they completely obscure it. They 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 mention uh, that they get Pentagon funding at the bottom of their privacy page um, after they list the U.S. you know uh, you know fish and wildlife service, uh, which they get you know like seventy seven thousand dollars from. They they get far 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 more money from the Pentagon than they do from the NIH and even more money from USAID. What's particularly interesting about the NIH cutoff that Trump did um, was that there was a letter put out by a bunch of uh, Nobel Prize uh, winners denouncing this move. Um, And so what the heck are, uh, you know, all of these Nobel Prize winners doing getting their business effectively defending Equal Health Alliance, which any of them who are minimally literate must know is engaging in a non-scientific endeavor by saying that lab origin is a conspiracy theory when there had been numerous warnings in scientific literature, uh, in the Bolton of the Atomic Scientists, in other places before the pandemic about the possibility of lab origin. What are all of these Nobel, uh, like, I don't know, 70 or 100 Nobel Prize winners um, getting involved in this. Well, part of the mechanism of this seems to be um, uh, corporate interests because you had a similar letter several years ago uh, attacking uh, people who were scrutinizing GMOs. So there seems to be this, um, you know, corporate and or government mechanism that gets these Nobel Prize winners to chime in at critical hmm. times during a scientific debate. Seems likely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, part of the, uh, I don't know if you saw the recent John Stewart rant on lab origins. I uh, heard of it, but didn't watch it. Yeah. Um, but you're welcome to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's just that, you know, he, you know, he effectively ends up blaming science, you know, and, you know, I can kind of understand the compulsion. He, he basically adopts lab origin. Um, and makes it, you know, as as an accident lab leak. Um, uh, but he, you know, I mean, the whole notion of blaming science rather than the 
political economy of science rather than the, the science, big science as we have it now, that is military funded, that is funded by spooks, uh, that, that, that is uh, basically molded by apparatchiks like Fauci, uh, who's been a longtime proponent of uh, gain of function the creation of potentially pandemic pathogens work, who has attempted to shut up uh, scientists when they objected um, to, to this uh, kind of uh, emphasis in terms of funding priorities and so on. So you, you, I, I think that what we're going to be seeing is this sort of debate between, you know, corrupt big science and, you know, kind of a complete Ludditism which is a very bad setup in my, I mean, I mean, Fauci and Daszak are to, uh, are, are to science what, you know, Oral Roberts and Jerry Falwell are to religion, you, you know? Um, you, yeah. Well, Fauci kind of made that clear. You can't, you can't let own the concept of, you know, alleged scientific principles of looking at evidence and being logical. And I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. I just like that you made that analogy because um, uh, relatively recently Fauci basically said, um, for all intents and purposes, said an attack on me is an attack on science, huh. <laughs> I didn't uh, which, which is, you know, sort of like a religious-esque uh, approach to it. Yeah. Um, so it is it, very, it, uh, a very apt metaphor. Yeah, it totally is a, you know, we, we, uh, large parts of our society have substituted white lab coats for black priests' robes as these reverential figures rather than embracing science as to what it really is applying reason and evidence and looking at evidence that's what science is supposed to be about instead it's become this complete appeal to authority uh, in conjunction with big media and you know uh, government officials it's completely contrary to the to the notion of all you know realistic real based science and um, I, I'm glad you brought up, um, well, you've talked about it um, earlier, too, about how there's basically these two camps that have formed now. Either it was, you know, lab leak or it's absolutely crazy to even consider still a conspiracy theory uh, to even discuss the possibility. And we can get more into this later because I think that's um, really right. dangerous to have that be the black and white here. Absolutely. Um, specifically because when you consider... Um, uh, that during COVID-19, there has just been an, an explosion, an incredibly risky gain of function research, supposedly as a way to research how to combat uh, COVID-19. Um, but Independent Science News, where, where some of your work has been published recently, published some Freedom of Information Act request documents uh, showing that very risky research has been going on at places like the University of North Carolina um, that already had um, a release of a, like a genetically engineered version of SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, uh, released. And that also the UPMC in Pittsburgh and in, in Pennsylvania uh, has been trying to uh, genetically combine uh, SARS-CoV-2 with anthrax, uh, supposedly to develop a, a vaccine candidate, but it, it just seems, um, you know, these are just some examples. There's just really a huge uh, proliferation of that going on um, at the moment. So to sort of uh, basically discount the role that, you know, gate of function uh, plays overall, uh, regardless of, you know, the, the origin issue in and of itself, you know, I think is pretty dangerous. Um, yeah, you're... Um, um... You're ahead of me on that. Um, well, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, we we and, can keep and, talking about EcoHealth Alliance. I just wanted to bring it up in case I forgot later. Um, 
I mean, that, that, that is exactly what happened after, uh, and, you know, we might go down this thread too, the, the, um, the anthrax attacks, you know, that was the original impetus for a lot of this, uh, yes. work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I know you've done, a very good amount of work on this, and I think that it bears a lot more scrutiny um, in, in terms of what's actually going on here and what the parallels are and personnel and so on. Um, but, you know, there was a huge surge in funding of Dangerous Lab Book after the anthrax attacks, which, of course, is incredibly mm-hmm. insidious and ironic because they came out of a U.S. or U.S.-allied lab. Um, and Again, what I alluded to earlier, there was a concerted effort in the scientific community to object to this. In 2005, there was a letter by 700 scientists pleading with the NIH to not, um, you know, to, to stop this, you know, funding that, that it was becoming too much and that it was deforming the field. Um, and it was Fauci who responded at that point that basically told these scientists to put on their big boy pants. What what he said was, the the American people have told us through their elected representatives, that's the Bush-Cheney administration he's talking about, that they want this work done, and it can either be done through other agencies, i.e. Pentagon, or it can be done through NIH. So he's in effect telling all of these scientists that if we want to have a seat at the table, um, that that they should shut up with these concerns. Uh, So he was the enforcer on this. Hmm. And he's played an insidious role for literally decades. Right. So um, I, I just want to wrap up um, on EcoHealth Alliance then. Uh, one person that you've pointed out uh, who I've actually um, dug into a little bit in terms of his uh, 2017 visit to the Wuhan Institute um, of Virology um, is David Franz, um, who um, – do you mind talking a little bit about him and his connection to EcoHealth Alliance and why that's important? You might know more than I do, but uh, what I know is that he's an advisor there, and he was at Fort Detrick, uh, I think a very high official at Fort Detrick. He also, after the outbreak of the pandemic, wrote a piece with Judy Miller, of who's the New York Times reporter who um, – was basically the only one who was called out for their Iraq WMD claims. She was just so brazen about it, Mm -hmm. Uh, basically calling for an increase in funding, uh, so-called gain-of-function lab work in Fort Detrick and so on. They were in peace together uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, So that, that, that to me, sets off a series of alarm bells. And what's interesting, (laughs) the deep background with him, he... You know, Judy Miller still worked for the Times for a little bit after the Iraq invasion, and there mm-hmm. was an article where she quotes him pushing the narrative that um, Iraq had these mobile weapons labs. It was like the last gasp of the establishment trying to hold on to the idea that the Iraq invasion was justified because Saddam had these hidden mobile weapon labs that we couldn't find somehow. Um, and it was David Kelly, British scientist, who um, exposed that lie, and he was later he, he later died in an alleged suicide. That I believe uh, a documentary is coming out, and that's going to be scrutinizing whether or not. It was yeah, a lot of people believe that Kelly died under suspicious circumstances, and given what was going on at the time, it wouldn't be altogether too surprising. Um, what I would like to add to that about David Franz is that uh, Franz was one of a handful of Americans 
that went to inspect um, Iraq after uh, the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Other people that went were Robert Cadlick, who I've written about considerably, um, mainly last year in the Engineering Contagion series, and uh, William C. Patrick III, that if you read the third part of that series, which is mainly about Robert Cadlick, uh, you will know that I think Patrick was probably um, the top is probably the top suspect in the 2001 anthrax attacks of actually having uh, been responsible uh, for that. And, and, and that those, uh, that nexus in particular, those individuals who were um, tied to the military or the, the CIA or, or both <laughs> in the case of someone um, like William C. Patrick III, who also was a longtime figure at, at Fort Detrick as well, um, you know, basically came up with this whole mobile lab thing um, as well I had to justify why they didn't find anything after making such a big fuss in the early 90s that Saddam Hussein had a large um, program uh, that involved anthrax, which is why so many um, Gulf War veterans um, were injected with the anthrax vaccine, which was later uh, linked by numerous people and studies to Gulf War syndrome. So obviously a bit controversial controversial there um, for for more than one reason. And as you mentioned, he teamed up with um, Judith Miller later on. But Judith Miller, um, in addition to citing Franz in the report you cited, I believe cites Franz considerably in her book Germs uh, that came out uh, right before the anthrax attacks. Um, And uh, of course, Judith Miller was a participant in the Dark Winter exercise where Robert Cadlick was also involved in writing the script, as were the people at the Johns Hopkins, uh, what is now the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, previously the Johns Hopkins Center for uh, Civilian Biodefense Studies, I believe, uh, who uh, not only did Dark Winter, but also uh, led Event 201, <laughs> uh, making them a bit controversial this time around um, as well. And for people that aren't familiar on Dark Winter, um, the first podcast episode of this series goes into it in great detail, but also um, I would refer you to the Engineering Contagion series, parts one, two, and three, um, for more information on those things. Um, But this is why, you know, Franz, in terms of his ties to Eco Health Alliance, I think is interesting, uh, because in 2017, he was part of a delegation that went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And when he uh, went there uh, and was speaking uh, to people at that institute, um, he outlined, among other things, um, possible joint project ideas with uh, the military and U.S. academia which included carrying out um, joint tabletop exercises or simulations of outbreaks, uh, sort of like Dark Winter, essentially, but between the U.S., um, you know, the uh, different entities of the U.S. and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, and also uh, spoke about decision-making surrounding gain-of-function research and, quote, overcoming barriers to sharing strain collections and transport of pathogens, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, when you consider uh, Francis ties to people like Robert Cadlick, uh, William C. Patrick III, and this whole um, group that had a lot of um, very shady connections regarding the anthrax attacks. And then, of course, his uh, tie as an advisor to EcoHealth Alliance and his own connection to Fort Detrick, which, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, um, for those that don't know, um, I wrote a piece in January 2020 that was um, my first piece ever uh, published on The Last American Vagabond, um, where I talked about how among other things, um, that there's actually a uh, biosafety level three lab in Wuhan um, that's called the Wuhan Institute of Medical Virology. Um, it's actually a part of a, uh, a university that's a combination of Duke University in the U.S., which is a frequent um, contractor for DARPA, and also Wuhan University. Um, and that 
Institute of Medical Virology in Wuhan is directly partnered with Fort Detrick and has been since the 80s. Um, so I think that's pretty significant as well. Um, when you consider that, you know, even though the Wuhan Institute of Virology for being biosafety level four has gotten most of the attention, bio uh, with biosafety level three, you can work with coronaviruses, including SARS and SARS-CoV-2, um, as well as anthrax and a lot of other pathogens. You can use CRISPR for gene editing at that level. So a lot of the, um, you know, possible techniques that are, you know, believed that uh, in terms of gain of function that could have created something like, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 in a lab um, were available to that other lab as well. And that hasn't been talked about um, hardly at all, which I think is kind of interesting as well. That is interesting. Um, I had seen some reporting about a BSL-2. I can't remember where. I, I, I think in one of the recent um, Bolton the Atomic Scientists pieces. I mean, Bolton for the Atomic Scientists were just kind of scandalous in you know, how long they took to get on the ball, but they, they have published some things that are somewhat useful. But I think they only talked about another BSL-2 and not the BSL-3 that you're talking about, and I don't think that I knew about the con direct connection to Fort Detroit. Well, they listed on their website. I mean, hopefully huh. it's still online. It was a way back. I, I way back machined it um, huh. in January 2020. I mean, hopefully um, it's still there. Um, um, but, organic, you know. Alexis at Organic Consumer Association has noted that um, Xi Jingli, the so-called bat lady of the Modern Institute of Virology, has, has, if not gotten DOD money, has co-authored at least two, probably more pieces with uh, people who who have gotten DOD money. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That's so, true. So that there are connections there as well. So mm -hmm. I mean, all of the, the mantra is, you know, was the WIV connected to the Chinese military? And, um, you know, lately in, in major media, ABC has a big story about that recently. Um, so I'm like, yeah, uh, they, they, well, you know, what they Maybe they do have a connection to the Chinese military, but they definitely have some kind of connection to the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I wanted to add to you about EcoHealth Alliance is this uh, other thing that they're a part of called the Global Virome Project. I don't know yes. if you're familiar with that, um, but they're pretty interesting because it combines basically uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, which, of course, was another main sponsor of Event 201, along with the John Hopkins people and the World Economic Forum. Uh, with EcoHealth Alliance, uh, some of the top people at USAID's PREDICT program, uh, which is one of the uh, programs here that was involved in funding EcoHealth Alliance's work at the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and in the region in general, um, but also Metabiota, which if you're familiar with the work of Diliana uh, Gatsunyeva, sorry if I'm butchering your last name again, Diliana, um, uh, who writes at Arms Watch, um, you know, uh, she noted that Metabiota was one of the main contractors for the, the Lugar Center in Georgia that, um, you know, she did a lot of credible reporting about how they've been engaged in very um, nefarious uh, experimentation on, on locals there in, in biowarfare research. Um, so it's interesting to see all of those people together um, at the Global Virum Project, which interestingly enough, um, was set up at a meeting at the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center, uh, which is kind of interesting because uh, Bellagio, the Rockefeller installations at Bellagio, Italy, is also uh, what gave rise to the Club of Rome, 
uh, back several decades ago and, and whose own origins are closely tied to those of the World Economic Forum. Uh, just kind of interesting how many of these groups seem to uh, connect there. But at this meeting that launched uh, the Global Virum Project with all of these entities I just laid out, one of the people present which was uh, George Gao from the Chinese CDC, who was also a main speaker uh, and participant at Event 201. And you also had a lot of people from the World Health Organization and the NIH. So interesting to see um, all of them together. Right. The Global Viral Project is connected. It's like EcoHealth Alliance Squared. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the head of it, uh, Carol, was... Dennis Carroll. Yeah, was the guy at uh, PREDICT, uh, the the program under USAID, which funded EcoHealth Alliance. Um, Last I checked, uh, Dazek was like treasurer of some or something of the global viral project um so th- they're linked and uh, you know that carol is now starting to get more media um i think because dazek's name is such you know garbage um uh, so they're sort of putting him forward and i think what we're trying we're starting to see is this sort of spy versus spy um you know on the one side it's people like dazek and Carol and so on, who are, you know, closely allied with either the U.S. military, U.S. military and um, USAID, uh, which, as you note, is a kind of quote unquote soft power, you know, cousin of the CIA. Um, And uh, on the other side are, you know, sort of some, you know, stripe of China basher. Um, uh, One person who's been Getting out there a fair amount, the former Clinton administration official, um, uh, Jamie Metzl. Um, so, you know, they're going to attempt to constrain it so that it's either, so that both, both arms of the establishment get their way, right? One arm of the establishment wants to continue the dangerous lab work and the other wants to use this as leverage against China. Um, so they're effectively trying to, you know, uh, do their dance as to how they can both get what they fundamentally want. And neither obviously is concerned about what the facts are, what the truth is, um, you know, uh, preventing dangerous lab work and so on. Uh, they, they just simply want to exercise as much as possible of monopoly over it. Right. So um, there's one more thing I want to add about EcoHealth Alliance, just because it ties in with, um, for people that are familiar on my work on well, on Robert Cadlick specifically, for people that don't know who Robert Cadlick is, um, he was basically in charge of coronavirus response during the entire, um, or during the last year of the Trump administration, um, because he was uh, the um, Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS's um, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, uh, which is actually a position that Robert Cadlick, beginning in the early 2000s, essentially created uh, by drafting legislation over a series of decades, and then conveniently, uh, with the onset of coronavirus, was in uh, office right at that time, uh, or in that particular position he had created right at that time that gave him uh, just an ex- excessive amount of control um, over uh, what vaccines would be funded, what therapeutics would be funded, um, PPE, um, just just numerous, uh, just, just an insane amount of control over um, coronavirus uh, policy in the U.S. during that time, um, despite the fact that he's notoriously corrupt and has a lot of um, very shady connections that I encourage you to check out in that article. But um, in terms of a tie between him and EcoHealth Alliance, um, 
Robert Cadlick set up something um, that is now known as the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. It's basically a biodefense, quote unquote, think tank um, set up by Robert Cadlick in, I think, two, uh, 2012, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, but it's headed by Tom Ridge. Uh, and Joe Lieberman, who who are pretty hawkish, um, you know, in terms of one's a Republican, one's a Democrat. But, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Lieberman, you'll know that he's uh, basically John McCain <laughs> uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, anyway, William Koresh, who's the executive vice president for health and policy at EcoHealth Alliance, uh, is... Uh, is a longtime member of that commission. Only, uh, I don't know exactly when he became an ex officio member. I think it was relatively recently. Um, but uh, he continues to be involved in um, that um, commission's dealings to some degree. Um, another ex officio member alongside William Koresh there is none other than uh, Scooter Libby, uh, germ boy himself, as he was called in the in the Bush administration for his obsession with biowarfare stuff, and also specifically with Dark Winter, um, who's now, uh, he was also Dick Cheney's former chief of staff, um, but he's now in a, uh, on the executive team of the Hudson Institute, which funds this commission, um, and Koresh has attended Hudson Institute, um, um, I guess, talks about um, biodefense and COVID and all of this stuff uh, with Lieberman and some other people. So um, beyond that, Koresh has a lot of ties to the UN, uh, USAID, and he's also a, a CFR member. So it's interesting to see all of all of these ties there at EcoHealth Alliance. Uh, they're definitely very well connected, uh, definitely very shady. And um, I really wish more people would be talking about these different aspects about them, including what you've covered. And actually, um, the Daily Caller uh, covered some of your reporting uh, on it not that long ago, um, not even bothering to link to your piece, linking to instead to um, the, the, the funding information you obtained um, so that no one can actually read the original source. Um, pretty sneaky of them. Um, and of course, a lot of right wing outlets that um, subsequently reported on the Daily Caller's quote unquote new uh, story uh, cited them as the original source. Um, which is pretty unfortunate, but just shows, you know, just how um, uh, how journalism works more often than not these days. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, very frustrating to the degree that, you know, yeah, my reporting is being picked up. It's being, you know, sort of picked up very selectively uh, by some right wing outlets and being largely excluded from traditional allies. Um uh, another aspect of this in terms of commissions and so on, you have uh, Philip Zelikow, who is the head of the uh, or the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, setting up some kind of quasi-academic group, I, I think, at the University of Virginia in order to look into um, uh, the origins. And uh, what I fear might happen is that Congress might, in effect, hand uh, any kind of investigation over to him. Um, in terms of um, uh, 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 the uh, pandemic origins. Yeah, and, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Right, and, <laughs> and he would be the one to sort of arbitrate between the two arms of the establishment, the bioweapons establishment and the China bashing establishment, because uh, that, 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 that they effectively want to cut a deal together. Um, so uh, I think that's, that's a big thing to watch out for coming down the pike. Yeah, uh, was Peter Daszak added to the, added to that commission? Isn't he a member of of Zelikow's thing? I think he. I, may I don't be. know about that. 
Well, I know that he added some people with conflicts of interest. I think one of the people he added was Michael Callahan, who is a former uh, DARPA lead, heavily USAID funded. Um, I was in Wuhan in January 2020, was one of the first people on the cruise ships um, to uh, when all that was going on uh, with the early uh, COVID stuff. Uh, and and definitely has a lot of conflicts of interest for for other reasons. So I thought maybe Dazek might be there since he was um you know uh, secretly the author of I don't know if it was the Lancet a Lancet piece dismissing um, the lab uh, origin possibility uh, last year that was sort of his role in drafting that was hidden among other things. So it wouldn't surprise me, but I'll have to go check up on that. Uh, just to be sure. But it wouldn't surprise me to have someone like him on uh, Zelikow's <laughs> uh, commission. And for people that aren't familiar with uh, Philip Zelikow and the whole thing that happened with him and the 9-11 commission, his conflicts of interest in that regard, why he was likely put there, because you have to remember that the original person who was going to head the 9-11 commission was Henry Kissinger. Right. And then after people complained about that, they put in Philip Zelikow, who maybe wasn't as infamous as Kissinger, but really wasn't that much better um, at the end of the day. Um, James Corbett, if you look for, um, you know, on his site, um, stuff for Philip Zelikow, you'll definitely find, um, I think, uh, uh, more than one video dedicated uh, to that man and his role in the 9-11 um, uh, commission uh, or cover-up, depending on how uh, you look at those events. So, um Moving along, um, another article, Sam, that you wrote um, last year, uh, came out last May. Um, it discusses the long history of accidental lab releases of pathogens with pandemic potential. So from your research, how frequent are these events and how has this informed your opinions about the potential origins of, of such um, a possibility um, regarding uh, COVID-19? Um, they're, they're quite they're disturbingly frequent if you really look at it. And I was, you know, startled to, to find how frequent when I was researching it after the pandemic started. Um, you, you know, and it, it had been covered in the mainstream at USA Today. Allison Young, a reporter there, do a whole series of articles in 2013, 2014 um, uh, about that. And, you know, uh, she, you know, she's again one of these people who was incredibly silent. Um, last year, but she started doing some interesting reporting now. Um, but of course, she's going to frame it as, you know, accidental along with the rest of the major media at this juncture. Um, uh, but it could well be what happened, and it certainly has happened in the past. And n not only, has, I mean, I mean, SARS, for example, um, is still is widely thought to be and I don't have any information to the contrary to be of natural origin, um, but it uh, was uh, released uh, accidentally through uh, lab labs two or three times after the outbreak. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but there have been numerous others. There uh, was an uh, N1H1 virus that was uh, released, I believe, in the 1950s or 60s, and um, uh, uh, did major damage, um, and the the the, current, the reporting that I've been able to find on it sort of came to the conclusion that the scientific community sort of you know swept it under the rug because they didn't want to increase tensions between U.S. and Russian scientists. Allegedly, that was the alleged reason. Um, uh, in an old Bolton Atomic Scientists uh, article on on the subject, so both things have happened, both many numerous lab leaks as well as the scientific community 
coalescing in order to sweep the possibility of lab origin under the rug um, have a, a, a long and dangerous uh, history. Yeah, uh, when I was writing about um, the anthrax attacks um, last year um, in considerable detail and uh, considering everything that's um, been going on now, I was really surprised to learn that in the aftermath of that, um, I think between... Uh, 2005 and 2015, it may have even been uh, longer because they only started counting it, but there were like hundreds of occasions on when anthrax was shipped around right. uh, different army facilities throughout the U.S. without uh, the proper containment for it. Mm -hmm. And considering what happened with the anthrax attacks and, and the mail system and all of that, I mean, that's really scandalous. And it happened like hundreds of times until it was found in a government accountability office report, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to go double check on, on, on exactly... Um, <laughs> <laughs> who found it out but i mean that's the uh, that's just totally insane um the the lack of uh care in treating these kinds of pathogens and that came up in a big way last year for fort detrick specifically which if, if you believe the uh, official story anyway about the anthrax attacks is supposed to be the source of the anthrax use in that attack though if you read um, my series it, it there definitely are some other possibilities like uh battelle's west jefferson facility um, and some people think uh, the Dugway facility in, in Utah may have been involved. Basically, last year, um, in July, I think it was, Fort Detrick was forced to shut down. Right. Um, and, and for a, a series of violations. But two of those uh, issues involved two breaches of containment of pathogens that we don't know what they are. Um, a, a Twitter account um, who's uh, really great. I recommend everyone follow him. Uh, Gumby for Christ, the number four, um, has done a lot of work on this stuff and obtained the, the Freedom of Information uh, Act documents uh, regarding the uh, this incident at Fort Detrick last year specifically, and they redact the names of the the pathogens involved. But uh, the, the safety lapses and breaches uh, at Fort Detrick uh, found uh, in this instance were considerable um, and very, very unsettling um, for, you know, a variety of reasons, not just, you know, that it, it may have had some potential role in the weird respiratory illnesses that were going around nursing homes um, and other places during this time that were later blamed on the so-called vaping uh, illness that, you know, disappeared uh, once COVID-19 was really on the scene. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people have speculated about that. It's really hard to know um, exactly uh, what was going on. But it is interesting to see sort of the military involvement at places like Wuhan. And then, of course, um, similar things going on uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, possible uh, lapses of safety that could have resulted in something being released. Also going on in a U.S. military uh, bioweapon or biodefense uh, facilities in the U.S., um, so I don't know if you've looked into uh, those um, that breach um, or, or those issues at Fort Detrick specifically, but what I found really um, striking about it is that uh, Congress wasn't notified. They actually learned about it. Um, local senators in Maryland uh, and congressmen from Maryland uh, learned about it from the reporting of, I think, uh, the local outlook in Fredericksburg, Maryland, uh, that covered the fact that it had been shut down. So that's pretty significant that even Congress... Uh, was hadn't been notified that Fort Detrick had been shut down. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I haven't pursued it substantially. I, I know that there are some activists in the area, uh, Barry uh, Christen, his lawyer, um, and I believe that he's trying to follow, follow on that. Um, the, I, I mean, I was just looking at, you know, they, they, they put the pause of gain of function 
work on, in 2014, and that was largely attributed to the um, uh, reporting of large-scale um, accidental uh, releases and so on at, at, at labs. Um, it was also the time of the Ebola outbreak as well, um, and I was just looking at an old video um, of uh, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, uh, you know, j talking about how um, th they even found uh, spores that they didn't know that they had of smallpox. Um, I, th I think they were only supposed to have one thing of smallpox, which, you know, I mean, arguably they shouldn't have, but they actually found, you know, some of the most deadly pathogens and storage cases and so on that they that they didn't know they had. So the, the possibilities here for accidental or quote-unquote unauthorized release and so on are too, you know, numerous to, to calculate. So right. all, all, all of the rhetoric about, you know, China needs to disclose, China needs to be transparent and so on, all of that, you know, goes doubly to U.S. facilities. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth pointing out, too, that a lot of these safety lapses, including the one last year at Fort Detrick, you know, at Fort Detrick specifically, this this has been like a multi-decade long issue uh, for Fort Detrick. Um, if you go back and you read the, the first um, article in my engineering contagion series, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, it starts with the story about Philip Zack. Um, who gained unauthorized access to Fort Detrick uh, to do research um, on anthrax and other pathogens. Some of the vials containing pathogens just went missing and no one noticed until there was a, a separate, an investigation like a year or two later, um, a lot of shady stuff going on back then. And, you know, after... Um, Engaging in that type of activity, Philip Zack was allowed to continue collaborating with U.S. government researchers and it later went on to uh, head a special uh, investigative uh, research department at Gilead uh, right after Donald Rumsfeld left uh, being head of Gilead to be Secretary of Defense uh, in the Bush administration. Um, so just pretty interesting um, and, and a pretty illustrative, uh, illustrative example about how there's really been no accountability for this kind of stuff in the U.S. for a very long time and that the... Um, proliferation of gain of function research since then has just really exploded as you mentioned earlier um uh, developing in a huge way after the uh, anthrax attacks but now with covid19 uh, you could argue that it's another explosion uh, on that scale potentially uh larger even uh with even more uh potentially dangerous forms of biotechnology being used yeah i think that you know you know i think it's easy enough to say regardless of the origins um, you need to, you know, stop or seriously scrutinize so-called gain-of-function work at this point. I mean, I mean, you could make an analogy to, um, uh, to, to you know, climate. Uh, you know, you, you you can't say you know this, you know, uh, factory or you know or, or you know burning this set of fossil fuels caused that hurricane. You know, you know it's a complex system, obviously. But you can say that, you know, burning fossil fuels increases the likelihood of, um, uh, you know, climate disruption. So um, I think it's a fairly simple thing to say that um, continuing this level and nature of um, dangerous biolab work dramatically increases the possibilities of uh, of uh, deadly pathogens. I mean, you know, I mean, what they're kind of trying to do is sort of get ahead of, of that's that, that's the ostensible reason they're getting ahead of nature. They're getting ahead of the terrorists. 
coming up with deadly pathogens. But it's like to solve an alleged problem, they are taking dramatically greater risks, right? It, 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 yeah. it's, it's like, you know, um, you know, I covered the, um, uh, uh, the plowshares trial in Georgia in 2019, and that was very um, educational in how the government manipulated information in that courtroom. But part of the dynamics of that was the, these activists went to this Trident nuclear facility, um, which is the main hub of these Trident submarines that go to the you know shores of Russia, sit there, and it's so insidious because. To, in order to defend, quote unquote, the United States from potential nuclear attack from Russia, they sit there off the shore of Russia, effectively making the Russians on a hair trigger alert. Um, so that, you know, dramatically increasing the possibilities of a accidental launch because the Russians, you know, got whatever it is, 12 minutes to decide whether or not this is an actual attack or not. So it's sort of a similar thing going on here, or, or the whole war on terror thing. We've got to intervene in order to solve the problem. It, 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 the solution is the disease. The, the, the solution is making the threat more dangerous. That, that, that's what mm-hmm. so-called gain-of-function work is doing, um, uh, and, and it's a very militarized mindset. Uh, I think that, that that's a huge uh, but I, it's actually going back to Equal Health Alliance I actually uh, found a quote um, um, from Peter Daszak in the talk that he gave with uh, uh, Jeffrey Sachs uh, where he actually cites very positively Donald Rumsfeld's there are no knowns, known unknowns does <laughs> that quote and, and he says what a genius you know it's exactly the same oh my gosh with, um, with the, 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 the uh, you know, why does like, anyone trust this guy? Yeah, that's, right. so, that's you, scary. <laughs> dealing with you know terrorists the way that Rumsfeld did allegedly, yeah, is making exactly up lies to, to justify invading. Yeah, um, all right, man, that I didn't know that. That's pretty disconcerting on multiple levels. Uh, some guy saying that Rumsfeld's a hero for his uh, um you know the terrorists could be anywhere type of mentality um that's definitely not good anyway um well um one thing uh, that i think is important to throw in here in talking about gain of function is that uh, generally at least publicly uh, one of the main justifications and probably one of the biggest <laughs> obstacles into uh sort of reducing the amount of this research that's done in the US and more broadly globally is that gain of function research is justified as being necessary for the development of vaccines uh and therapeutics specifically uh, medical countermeasures uh for the uh, you know a, a potential future pandemic or bioterrorist attack right so um as an example of that type of statement being made, um, you know, uh, there's this guy, W. Paul uh, Dupree, I think, or it's spelled Duprex, but I assumed his last name was like Dupree or something. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it. But anyway, he's a, a DARPA-funded scientist. He used to be a chief scientist at Johnson & Johnson. Uh, he currently runs the Center for Vaccine Research at UPMC um, in Pittsburgh. Um, and he stated in a 2014 Nature paper that gain of that quote gain of function approaches are absolutely absolutely essential and in infectious disease 
disease research, although alternative approaches can be very useful. They can never replace gain-of-function experiments, uh, end quote. And then he goes on to add that there are only two reasons for gain-of-function research, the first being, quote, to improve surveillance or to develop therapeutics, end quote, like vaccines specifically, which is this, what the center of the, that he runs develops specifically are vaccines. Um, and the second being merely to learn, quote, interesting biology. Um, so, of course, the latter point, um, if gain of one gain, uh, you know, with gain of function under scrutiny now is a much harder sell, but saying that you need it to improve surveillance, which is something that EcoHealth Alliance likes to involve themselves in, or, um, the development of vaccines, I think, you know, the, the, ang- the pharmaceutical industry angle there uh, makes it a much harder issue to tackle because then you're adding, um, you know, in the interest of the a very powerful uh, component of the private sector um, there as well. So um, what do you make of this uh, fact that a lot of gain of function uh, proponents and scientists frame research, um, frame this really risky research as being necessary um, to combating a pandemic, even though it could potentially cause one? Um, I mean, Ebright at Rutgers claims that that there there's been no documented case of gain of function work actually coming up with something useful. Um, I haven't investigated that uh, directly. Um, it, it's just simply come up with deadly pathogens, and it never seems to get to the point of actually solving right. the problem that it creates. So it seems to just simply be what Francis Boyle has been alleging a pretext. In order, you know, you say that you have to develop something dangerous so that you can allegedly defend against it, but you never get to the defending against it part. So it's yeah. just simply a it's fake, a loophole. It's a it's a fake pretext for. I mean, Boyle doesn't argues that it's not really a loophole because in his he claims that they're just outright violating the law that he wrote and the bioweapons convention that that they're pretending that there's a loophole when there isn't because um, it, 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 the the um, uh, the convention and the law don't don't say that there's a, uh, uh, a, a you know for uh, it, it uses the word peaceful purposes. It doesn't say defensive purposes. It says peaceful purposes. So um, he, he right. that that means that you can't be doing this. If it said defensive, then you could argue what they're arguing. But the word defensive mm. isn't in the treaty. Um, well, there's several, you know, for uh, decades, they've been trying to get around uh, the wording of that. If I'm not mistaken, not that long before the anthrax attacks themselves took place, mm-hmm. um, the Bush administration rejected um, signing some sort of international document that would have forced them to be in compliance with that convention, uh, saying that regular inspections of U.S. defense uh, facilities or, or contractor facilities engaged in that type of research would uh, uh potentially lead to a loss of trade secrets or something like that. Uh, But then, of course, a couple months later, um, one of those facilities was the source of the anthrax used in the 2001 anthrax attack. So that's pretty interesting. Um, And to go back to those attacks, um, the alleged main reason the Bush administration rejected this is because of the experiments, the Pentagon-funded experiments to genetically engineer a more dangerous form of anthrax allegedly to improve emergent biosolution, then known as Bioport's anthrax vaccine at uh, Battelle's West Jefferson facility that involved uh, Ken Alibek, who I might bring up later, uh, and William C. Patrick III, who was pals with David Franz and Robert Kablik, among other people. I'd like to get, you know, I'd like to know more about why you think Patrick is the one behind the anthrax test, but I want to chime in. The, 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 that law that Boyle wrote passed, I think, unanimously, which was kind of remarkable. 
um, I think around 1989, 1990, and it was done with the uh, Council for Responsible Genetics, which has since gone under, and that's part of the problem. All of the groups that, you know, would have looked at, or most of the groups, uh, you know, uh, that would have looked at um, uh, the dangers of biolab work have have gone under because of, I assume, lack of funding. Um, but what's really fascinating, and this is somewhat speculative on my part, it was very advantageous to get that law passed prior to the Gulf War because it helped the U.S. both uh, posture in terms of attacking Iraq and to purge the Bush administration to purge any U.S. officials that might have been tacit allies of Saddam Hussein uh, in order to stand in the way of the Iraq invasion. So I believe that even the United States, uh, you know, uh, implement, you know, finally implementing that treaty, which Nixon had signed in 72, uh, was itself, it may have been a Machiavellian maneuver in order to, um, you know, facilitate, um, you know, coalescing the establishment for the Iraq invasion. But that, that, that's somewhat, you know, that, that just simply a question in my, in my mind. Um, the, the the entire notion of you know the gain of function work i mean as damaging as coronavirus has been and so on i mean uh, i've seen estimates that if the avian flu gets out in its weaponized form um from these scientists in the netherlands and the university of wisconsin funded by the nih uh, we're talking about more than a billion people dead um that that that's the level of threat um that we're uh, you know, potentially, you know, talking about. So the 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 risks are are enormous, um, and you know the, the the failures are both in the um, media sphere um, and in the legal sphere and in the political sphere. And so, on. if you want to call them, you know, failures, maybe they're successes. If you you don't want to keep going down this path, um, but that that that, I mean, even. Part of the motive, uh, I think, societally of you know only coming to terms with this is that if if it if the lab origin was seriously discussed um, a more than a year ago when it should have been, we would have seen a concerted global effort to stop it, and we're not now. It's a placing of elites uh, rather than. You know the potential of a mass, you know, global public revulsion as to what the scientific and uh, military and media uh, establishment has wrought. So I, I think that's that's part of the problem. Right. Well, I think another issue I, I sort of touched on this a little bit ago uh, of why you know gain of function well is unlikely to be touched by uh, mainstream media specifically is because there is a big. Uh, interest there of the vaccine industry to keep it going mm-hmm. um, uh, for some of the reasons I, I laid out before. But also, I mean, you can see this in the engineering contagion series too, about the anthrax vaccine uh, justifying the anthrax research that was going on. There's a lot of scientists that are very, and, and politicians and other individuals that are very invested um, in the, the network as it, as it is today, uh, you know, continuing to function um, as is. And uh, given the involvement of the vaccine industry specifically, you know, we've seen over the past year just the type of um, censorship and treatment of people who um, are critical of that. 
right. uh, particularly with the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Um, you know, people that follow my work know that I was deplatformed from Patreon for uh, critical reporting on the AstraZeneca vaccine that's now been banned in like 20 countries <laughs> um, and is, you know, increasingly, you know, I think Canada just um, said that they weren't going to be using it anymore and some other countries have followed as well. Um so, you know, that type of um, censorship is not obviously not in the public interest, because uh, I think the, the debate about whether AstraZeneca was safe should have happened before the rollout when concerns like mine and other, I wasn't the only one raising concerns about that particular candidate, vaccine candidate at the time. Uh, but, you know, this should have been, this should have happened then and not after the fact, right? When we, when there were obvious concerns that needed to be addressed uh, before the rollout, right? Um, and so, you know, the fact that we can't, um, at this point in time, really uh, effectively question the vaccine industry period without being labeled anti-vaccine, uh, you know, their involvement uh, to a large degree with a lot of this gain of function stuff um, and, and in funding it or, um, you know, the scientists that, you know, um, some of the scientists that are engaged in this are funded by big pharma or previously worked for big pharma, among other things, you know, there's definitely, um, an angle there, um, that is likely to keep it in place unless, you know, uh, more people get, uh, vocal about the dangers this, this presents to global health. Um, but anyway, I want to move on if that's okay in the interest of time. I do sure. have one more question. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story or not. Um, but there have been recent reports that a high-ranking Chinese intelligence official has defected to the U.S. recently and has been working with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, his name is apparently uh, Dong Jingwei. He's allegedly given troves of info to the U.S. government on the Wuhan Institute of Virology and other uh, bio-warfare, bio-defense programs uh, being overseen by the Chinese government. So, I, you know, I don't really doubt that the Chinese government engages in this stuff because the U.S. government does, and I'm sure... Um, you know, in keeping up with a sort of, you know, as a sort of an arms race type of thing, it would make sense the Chinese government uh, would fund this research. I mean, they fund it alongside the U.S. at places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, you know, but um, I, I am skeptical about this official because from uh, descriptions uh, of, of him and his story, he seems a lot like Ken Alabek, who I mentioned just a little bit ago. Um, and if you're not familiar with Alabek, um, he was the former head of Soviet biowarfare research. Uh, who defected to the U.S. right before the fall of the USSR. Um, he was, uh, you know, debriefed by the CIA uh, and later ended up heading the bioweapons uh, program at Patel West Jefferson facility during that Pentagon-funded uh, gain-of-function research on anthrax before the anthrax attacks with William Patrick. Um, and and Alabek, um and Patrick were both, in my opinion, uh, totally crazy people. Um, <laughs> and, and I say this for good reason. Um, there's, I think, in 1997, a New Yorker piece written about um, Alabek and, and Patrick. Um, because Patrick used to be um, the main anthrax guy at Fort Detrick. He has five classified pan uh, pa uh, patents, or had, he's dead now. Um, five classified patents on the uh, weaponization um, of anthrax and developed the original way it was uh, aerosolized and weaponized uh, by Fort Detrick uh, decades ago. Um, but in, in that New Yorker article, he and Alabek um, are looking down on the, on the town of um, Fredericksburg, Maryland, and just casually saying, well, you know, if it were up to me today, I'd, you know, what would, what mix of deadly pathogens would you use to release on the town down there? Um, and they're like, and then I think Ken, that's what, um, 
uh, Patrick was asking Canalabek, and Canalabek responds, oh, Marburg virus and smallpox. And then they like laugh about it. And, and the journalist writing this was like, this is normal. No, it's not normal. That's really freaky. Um, but, you know, um, it turned out Alabek, you know, he was used um, throughout the 1990s and even um, in the early 2000s to lead up to uh, the Iraq war. He claimed that Saddam Hussein had a very um, advanced biowarfare program that turned out to be false. And he also got caught uh, basically making up a bunch of stuff that was just stuff that he thought, you know, the cold warriors and the U.S. government wanted to hear. And it was really successful for a long time, but he later got um, called out for it. But, you know, not before doing a lot of damage. Um, so the narrative thus far about this Chinese official is looking at placing, you know, the the, the blame squarely on the Chinese government um, for a potential lab origin of COVID-19. And we've already discussed um, about how that's a, an obvious limited hangout. So I was wondering what your thoughts on that may be. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole structure of the media coverage lately has been, you know, the, the U.S. Were, were duped by the Chinese, like Dazak, you know, and company, uh, and Fauci were duped by the Chinese. And I, I think that that's preposterous. Um, they, they, they drove. I agree. They mm -hmm. drove it. I mean, if you look at her statements, she, she believes so called that lady, you know, she, she, she was, you know, she said that she told Scientific American, I couldn't sleep for three days, you know, because I was wondering if it came out of our lab. And then I did all these tests and I couldn't, I couldn't find that we had it. So, I mean, she could be telling the truth there. I don't know. Um, and, uh, Again, there are three main possibilities. It had nothing to do with the lab, looking less and less likely, but still a logical possibility. It was an accident coming out of the Chinese lab, in which case, and that would be explained by the Chinese basically trying to keep up with the U.S. in this dangerous lab work, or um, it uh, they're they're being framed, or it's some kind of intentional release and. Leading possibility, and that third option is that somebody is framing um, the, the, the Chinese labs. Um, so you know that that's that those are the main things, and they need to be separated out. And we need to talk about lab origin um, and and not not lab leak. Um, Something else well, in, in terms of that uh, last possibility, I, I, I want to bring up again this David Franz visit where he emphasized the need to collaborate more. And there's actually been a lot of national security linked officials over the years and sort of in the space that have criticized China for not being uh, willing enough to share uh, pathogens and different strain collections and things like that. Um, with the U.S. government, and this is something David Franz said uh, directly um, when he visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology just a couple of years ago, talking about gain of function and, and how they weren't sharing their strain collections and transporting pathogens enough. If they were, So in terms of that third poss possibility, a potential motive, if that is the case, I think would be, you know, did they not collaborate enough? And is this a way to get them uh, to collaborate more as we enter this crazy uh, gain of function realm in the COVID era. And, you know, uh, there's been people like Bill Gates and other people that have, uh, ha ha about the possibility of a pandemic too, um, as Bill Gates called it, which could easily, you know, in this climate of extreme gain of function going on now under the guise of, uh, combating COVID-19, um, could easily, you know, be the case, um, once again. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. There, there well, uh, just on the, attitude towards the Chinese, there are two 
I think, parallels that we need to keep in mind. Um, one is Iraq and what happened in, to Iraq in the 1990s where UNSCOM, you know, allegedly attempting to investigate the existence of Iraq's have, allegedly having WMDs was basically used as a pretext to, uh, you know, strangle Iraq to death. Um, and then for war. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure that that's a consideration and a threat on both the U.S. and the Chinese part that, that, you know, if there's some kind of instrument that the U.S. can use to, um, leverage against China in terms of investigating it and so on, I mean, I want to get to the bottom of it. Um, but I'm also highly concerned that the U.S. establishment is going to use it. Um, uh, you know, through some mechanism, um, as, as a way of, of demonizing China in the same way that Unstone was used. Um, the other possibility which just came to mind for me yesterday was, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole Merlin, Mer, Merlin project. Um, uh, no, I'm not. With, with, it, it, it had to do with Iran, and it was basically a U.S. cyber attack that attempted to, uh, not, not quite a cyber attack, but it was a covert operation that effectively tried to plant a nuclear gun on Iran. That is to give them nuclear technology that can then be used as a pretext against them. Um, so I, I think that that's, you know, a parallel and a possibility that we need to keep in mind as to what's going on here. That, that is, you know, was the whole DAZAC operation and company a way of getting China a level of technology that could then be planted and then and then used against them. Um, I mean, the U.S. has a long history of turning, you know, of being an alleged mm-hmm. ally or collaborator with people and then turning on them in some fashion. So I think that, that that's another uh, possibility that we need to keep in mind if we're going to try to sort through right. methodically. I mean, we, we may never get to the truth of what caused this. But what we can do is get to the truth as to who the liars are and break it down, as you're doing. Um, and and I think that that can be incredibly invaluable in this in this dangerous time. Well, as far as I see, you know, the possibilities with with China here, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's a, a couple different factions uh, in the U.S. establishment today. Um, so of course you have the China Hawks, uh, and you know, for anyone that wants to know about that. Uh, decades long agenda, uh, you know, like, uh, the PNAC people project for a new American century, um, and, and the neocons and all of that have been very explicit about, uh, targeting China for decades. And if you, uh, if anyone's familiar with John Pilger's documentary, the coming war on China, um, sort of this effort to militarize the space around China, um, in order to prepare for some sort of future war, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's very well documented. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, figures, uh, in the U S that are all about maintaining U S military hegemony, uh, into the foreseeable future at any and all costs, um, you know, are very open about that at some point there's going to be some sort of major conflict with China, whatever that is. But at the same time, uh, you also have a lot of prominent, um, 
I guess, businessmen, <laughs> I guess you could call them, who are also very well connected to the intelligence communities um, uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, people like Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, um, and Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone Capital. Um, and, and of course, you know, I think there's people in the Biden administration that probably fit this bill as well. And Henry Kissinger is also, a, even though he's not in politics anymore, is an influential voice in this camp as well, uh, saying that the U.S. needs to collaborate more closely with China um, uh, as, as a way to avert this war. Um, so, you know, which, uh, you know, are, you know, in, given what's happened with the Wuhan thing, was this a way to uh, push China into that collaboration camp uh, promoted by that one particular faction? Or is this to frame them in the push uh, for war by the China hawks? Uh, like you said, it's going to be really hard to know exactly what uh, the case is, but I, I suppose time will tell uh, as to whether, you know, that we, we go on a more militaristic path with China policy or there's this more uh, collaborative behind the scenes effort to, um, you right. know, basically collaborate on a lot of uh, very Orwellian uh, policies uh, of interest to both the U.S. and the Chinese government um, and, and more globalist organizations like the World Economic Forum and what have you. Um, but I think, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, but definitely the origins of COVID-19, I think, play into that and would, if we could get to the bottom of it, would elucidate sort of what the strategy was from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I think that the two may work hand in hand. And I, I don't you know, I, I'm trying not to go into a, you know, wait, wait and see thing. I, I think we need to, you know, is what we're doing here, intervening in the process, um, because neither of these camps want to get at the truth or protect the general public. Uh, they, they won't want to pursue their own uh, agendas. Um, and they could well use, I mean, if the U.S. establishment could prove that it came out of the Wuhan lab, I don't know that they would disclose that right away. They would use it as leverage. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we need to be, you know, careful as to, to how we sort it out. I, I think that they can, you know, use the threat of use of force or some other set of threats for their own advantage rather than, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it could end up, as Pilger has argued, uh, you know, outright war, or it could just simply be, you know, you're a junior partner in the global system that we, you know, are supreme in, uh, they, you know, but, but the two things can cooperate, go hand in hand. And the whole, you know, China, mm -hmm. anti-China, you know, I mean, there's the peanut crowd, but there's the whole Asian pivot thing was an Obama-Biden thing. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've long sensed that Biden has a deep um, you know, I don't know if I'd quite call it an animus, but, uh, you know, I mean, he is, has long been oriented towards what he would say is the China challenge that, you know, the U.S. and China are the, you know, two main um, civilizations that, you know, regard themselves as, you know, the center, you know, as is, you know, supreme, um, and that therefore China poses a unique, quote unquote, challenge to, to U.S. dominance. So, um, yeah, there, there's absolutely a lot, a lot of, pieces to this. And I, I think that we should, as much as possible, you know, in a good way, use these camps against each other, um, uh, you know, not to accelerate towards war, but to force further and further disclosure and, you know, you, you use the contradictions to, to try to get at the truth. 
Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up then, Sam, if that's okay, because we've already gone uh, a little over an hour and a half, and that's usually <laughs> where I end up having to cut off <laughs> uh, podcasts more often than not. But I think that was a really great discussion. So, um, so I'm sure much. people, um, after listening to this, will be interested to follow um, your work. I understand that you have an upcoming uh, piece. So um, if you want to drop a little hint about what that is about, when people can expect it, where to find it, and follow your work and support your work in general, uh, that would be great. Um, I should stay mum on that but i really do hope that people uh, will follow it um it um may well be in the next week with independent science news where i've been writing lately and i hope to be uh cranking out more stuff from my webpage husseini.org h-u-s-s-e-i-n-i.org and i may well be uh joining the uh, land of substack to see if that's a productive um uh, mechanism of, of getting information out. So, um, uh, so stay tuned for that. Okay, great. Uh, so thanks everyone for tuning into this important discussion about, uh, yet another, uh, narrative being co-opted by the establishment, uh, and that is hiding, um, a lot of really important information about what we've been experiencing in the past, uh, year and a half or so. Uh, hopefully we'll be we'll be back next week with another podcast. Uh, I'm hoping to have um, probably like uh, three to four uh, this month, a little more than my usual to make up for last month, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, so you can look for that. Um, of course, this uh, podcast is uh, a premium on Rockfin and available to subscribers only for the first five days, uh, but then it will be uh, publicly available on podcasting app SoundCloud and elsewhere. Um, so thanks so much for, for tuning in and catch you all next time.